You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, April 14th, 2022. I'm Cutta Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Kira McKinley goes over campus news with information on upcoming campus cultural events. Then, Ellie Shannon covers local news with details on a man dying in a single vehicle crash near Horsetooth Reservoir. Then, Cota Babcock goes over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies. And we hear from Colorado Senator Carrie Donovan from Vail about Colorado's new legislation to require an annual tribal address. After that, I go over information on how heavy winds and tornadoes are moving through the U.S. Listeners hear about microbiology from KCSU's newest podcast, Soylent Green. Then Carson Lane goes over the ending of women's basketball and the beginning of women's softball at CSU in her podcast, Play Like a Girl. To conclude today's show, I explain updates on technology with information on the rate of serious injuries at Amazon warehouses. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Kira McKinley reporting your campus news for Tuesday, April 12th. A Colorado State University alum, Dr. Chell Lindgren, will command a mission to the International Space Station this month. This will be Lindgren's second trip to the International Space Station, according to Jeff Dug of CSU Source News. Lindgren was a flight engineer during his first trip in 2015. On this upcoming trip, he will lead a four-person SpaceX crew. The team will leave April 23rd and return next fall. In other news, the CSU softball team broke their losing streak with a win against the University of New Mexico. According to Bryson Smick of the Collegiate, the CSU Rams won their game 5-2. For more information about CSU sports, listen to Eliza Droder's sports updates. This Friday, the Shabbat Jewish Student Organization will host its 17th annual Passover Seder. This event will take place in the Grand Ballroom at the Lori Student Center. They will be celebrating Passover, which is a holiday that celebrates the Jewish population's liberation from Egypt 3,000 years ago. Haya Geltzer, a student at CSU, describes Passover as, quote, The message of Passover is to give the people a path forward. It's easier to stay within the comfort zone, but making that decision comes with a cost, end quote. Thank you for listening to my CSU Camps News updates. I'm Kier McKinley, and on to local news. This is Ellie Shannon with your local news. A man died on Monday night in a single vehicle crash near Horsetooth Reservoir. The crash is still being investigated and took place at Horsetooth Cliffs Way and Centennial Drive. Horsetooth Cliffs Way is one of two short spur roads that lead into a small subdivision along the cliffs above the east shore of the reservoir, according to Miles Bloomhart of the Coloradoan. When first responders arrived at the scene, they found a deceased adult male. No other vehicles were involved in the accident. Last week, Larimer County Manager Linda Hoffman retired after almost 10 years. Hoffman guessed she had attended about 500 administrative matters meetings since she became the county manager in 2012, according to Sadie Swanson of the Coloradoan. Hoffman has dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic, multiple wildfires, floods, and more. After just 10 days into her tenure as Larimer County Manager, Hoffman had to begin with the High Park fire igniting. Assistant County Manager Lorenda Volker will be the interim county manager while the county hires Hoffman's replacement. After a study conducted between 2019 and 2021, Fort Collins has named their top 10 most dangerous intersections. The city recently released a draft of its road safety report and found that College Avenue and Trilby Road is the most dangerous intersection in Fort Collins. According to Miles Bloomhart of the Coloradoan, 
the intersection has cost $576,638 more dollars than expected for an intersection of its type. This intersection was the second most dangerous in a 2016 through 2018 report. In 2020, the Coloradoan reported that the city intended to spend about $4 million to complete more safety improvements at the intersection in 2021 or 2022, but that failed to happen. Horsetooth and Shields is the second most dangerous intersection, with College Avenue and Drake Road coming in at third. That's it for your local news this week. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review every Tuesday and Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. This is Ellie Shannon for KCSU on 90.5 FM, and we'll be right back. Yo, this is G-Love, and you're on 90.5. back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you miss any part of campus and local news with Kira McKinley and Ellie Shannon, check out our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen back. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports around 8,200 COVID-19 cases since reporting began in May 2020. Three new cases were reported yesterday among students, with no new cases reported among staff and faculty at CSU. Masks are no longer required on CSU's Fort Collins campus, with the exception of some buildings like the CSU Health Network. CSU's COVID-19 tracker has had some inconsistencies in its website. Just this Tuesday, it reported over 8,200 cases, and today it reports under 8,160 cases. Larimer County reports low COVID-19 community transmission levels, along with nearly 80,000 COVID-19 cases and over 480 deaths. Larimer County's seven-day case rate rose significantly in recent weeks, with 110 cases per 100,000 residents based on data reported this morning. 6.5% of tests administered in Larimer County came back positive in the past week, and new COVID-19 hospital admissions remain low. COVID-19 patients make up less than 2% of local inpatient hospital beds used. The state of Colorado reports nearly 1.3 million cases of COVID-19, along with over 13,000 deaths. 4.8 million people have been tested in Colorado, with overall hospitalization at over 61,000. 10.5 million vaccines have been administered in the state, and nearly 4 million Coloradans are vaccinated. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports over 80.2 million cases of COVID-19 and over 984,000 deaths nationally. Over 82% of the eligible U.S. population is at least partially vaccinated against COVID-19. The CDC extended mask requirements for public transit until May 3rd. Zeke Miller from the Associated Press reports that the mandate was extended as a result of increasing COVID-19 cases in the U.S. News of the extension came from the Biden administration Wednesday, with the CDC saying they plan to use the extension to further study the BA2 subvariant of Omicron COVID-19. 
The subvariant makes up most current COVID-19 cases in the U.S., with about 30,000 new daily cases. The original mandate was set to expire on April 18th, meaning that it's been pushed back by about two weeks. I'm Cutta Babcock, and that's all for Thursday's COVID-19 updates. Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Associated Press, and the CDC. If you are a student, staff member, or faculty member at CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine information and get the most recent updates on COVID-19 at the university. You're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins with the Rocky Mountain Review. Today, we're joined by Senator Kerry Donovan from Vail to discuss the establishment of Colorado's annual tribal address. Donovan is Senate President Pro Tem and sponsored the bill, which was recently signed by Governor Jared Polis. So this bill specifically focuses on improving communication between the state government and local Ute tribes, including the Mountain Ute tribe and Southern Ute Indian tribe. Can you explain how an annual address will support this goal and why it was chosen as the method to discuss these issues? Yeah, happily. First of all, thanks for having me on. It's great to catch up with you and your listeners. Uh, So this bill is symbolic and also an important opportunity for the tribes to share their concerns and successes. So every year, the General Assembly hears from uh, the governor when he talks, is invited up to address a joint session, which means the Senate and the House in the same chamber, and give what is commonly called the state of the state. We also, every other year, hear from the Chief Justice where the chief justice goes through the same process of addressing the House and the Senate and updating us on judicial priorities and concerns. So this gives the tribes of Colorado, our sovereign nation and our partners, uh, elevated to that same level of distinction to address a joint session and uh, share with us any concerns, the goals they have, and to inform us of how the tribes are doing. So symbolically, obviously, it elevates them to the same level as the governor in terms of addressing a joint session, a privilege that is held for very few. And then also in, in real uh, in real world, it also gives them a chance to speak to all 100 of us and say, here are the concerns we have and here's what's doing great. And don't forget about us as partners, as sovereign nation and community members. All right. And then were there any issues in specific that led to you and your colleagues creating this bill, even as it really is there to elevate tribal leaders and make sure that their voices are heard? Were there any specific issues facing the tribes that made this super necessary? No, the bill came to me after I was uh, working with the tribes and hearing you know, that some of their concerns is that they felt that they were often on the sidelines. And to me, if we think about them as a sovereign nation, they should be elevated. They shouldn't be on the sidelines. They should be elevated to the highest levels of discussion. And so one way to do that was to make sure that they, on an annual basis, have this opportunity to address this as a joint session and really respect their position as a sovereign nation within our state's borders. All right. And then while we've kind of already said this, um, this address specifically involves the joint session of the General Assembly and many issues facing local tribes are addressed a lot of the time by the communities themselves within cities and towns. So what impact beyond kind of getting people to that that same status as the governor? What impact do you think inviting Ute tribes to the legislator has on creating permanent and lasting change? Yeah, I think the permanent and lasting change will come as we create a culture of including and respecting the tribes. And I believe that will be kicked off by having them every session be part of our early discussions. 
So, right, if, if we aren't uh, making a deliberative effort to make sure that they're included in policy formation and how we can work together as partners, then I think we will continue just have the habit of not including our tribal partners in discussions. And this will, in a very real way, put them literally in front of the General Assembly and in a very real way, literally make us not forget them as our partners in making sure that the state as a whole is working with them to make sure that all parts of our state are included in conversations. And them as a sovereign nation deserve this level of respect and acknowledgement. We'll be the first state in the country uh, to have this as a practice and as law. And I hope many other states follow us in suit in elevating our tribal's voices to the highest of levels, including that of being a joint session address. And then something that kind of came up when I was talking to my colleagues about this is that um, a lot of time tribal events are completely different than government related events. So what say do tribes have in kind of the format and location of these addresses? And how does that align with the mission to improve the state's connection to tribes? Yeah, I love that question. It is, the law requires them to be invited to a joint address. Joint addresses do happen in the Capitol. They often happen in the House chamber, much like in D.C. when the president does his state of the state, it happens in the House chamber and everyone gathers there. Uh, And then they'll be speaking to everyone um, that is in in attendance there. So, yes, we are inviting them to the state capitol, but I but I I think the symbolism of that is important to make sure that these tribal leaders are given that type of respect to address a, a general assembly um, in an elevated position of respect and as true leaders in our state. All right. And then, as you've already said, the address will invite the tribal leaders to speak on the issues facing their communities at the Capitol building. Do you know kind of the timeline that the Colorado legislator is working with when planning this first address? The first address will likely be next January. That is traditionally when we do these joint addresses. Our Constitution actually requires the timing of uh, the joint address by the governor, I do believe. We do have some flexibility with the other addresses, but I think it makes most sense to kind of follow the, the habit and tradition of a January address to kick off the General Assembly. These joint addresses uh, provide uh, kind of one of the uh, ceremonial pieces of the early days of session, but also frame the discussion for what the General Assembly uh, may or may not take up. So the Senate president um, does his or her address, the speaker will do their address to their respective chambers, and then going forward from here, we will hear from the governor and we will hear from the tribes, which I am so excited for that to be a new aspect of the General Assembly's business. And then kind of related to that, how do you think that being able to have the joint address with the tribes will really impact how senators are and representatives in Colorado are relating to and communicating with their local tribal entities? Yes, you know, I think there are just a handful of elected officials that consistently think about our tribes as partners and think about when they're writing policy, you know, how it will impact the Southern Ute, how it'll impact the Ute Mountain Ute. But I believe that by having this annual address, 
it will make every lawmaker, all 100 of us, not forget the tribes when we're working on policy. And that will be a significant change for Colorado moving forward. So Colorado is the first state in the country to prioritize tribal needs through an address directly from leaders and Native communities. How do you think that this will impact nationwide involvement of tribes in solving issues of housing, poverty, and access to necessities in their community? Yeah, I think for far too long, we have silenced the voices of tribes, not even done the bare minimum of inviting them to the table. But even in some cases, I think the American government has silenced the voice of tribes and ignored their their needs. Uh, this this tribal address will put the the tribal leaders at the front of the room in a most literal um, of, of ways, but also in the front of the room when it comes to shaping policy. Now, as sovereign nations, you know, the, the tribes um, do not depend wholly on the state, right? They are, they are sovereign nations uh, that, that have their own governance, but the state needs to be a partner. And I think we will be a better partner by having uh, tribes do this joint address to, to share their successes and share their concerns. And what we see with different policies is there is a lot of policies that start in one state and then are adopted or enacted by other states as the years go on. So I'm hoping that this is a foothold for this type of um, uh, this type of bill that elevates uh, the tribe's voice in state government and making sure that our sovereign nations are our partners. And then kind of on the creation of this bill and moving it through the Senate, um, what was that process like and what stakeholders really supported um, the creation of this tribal address? Well, the most important stakeholder on this bill was the tribes themselves. And so when I came up with this idea, my first phone call was to the chairman of both tribes and asking them if they even wanted this bill, uh, because I didn't know if it's something that the tribes would find value. And so uh, my message to the tribes was, here's an idea I have. I would be really excited to run this bill and get it into law. But if you guys don't want it, it'll never see the light of day. So um, my stakeholders were the tribes themselves. Once they gave me the green light, we introduced it. And it was met in the Capitol with a lot of support, which I was uh, very excited about to see the General Assembly um, rally around this concept of making sure uh, that the, the Southern Ute and the Ute Mountain Ute um, are included in a very real way in the General Assembly's prioritization. And then what are your hopes for the future of tribal addresses in Colorado? And how do you think that this can really help bridge the gap, not only between tribal and Colorado state governments, but also between those living in designated tribal communities and those of us outside of those bounds? Yeah, you know, I I mean, I guess my ideal scenario, you know, would be that two years from now after uh, the, the chairman or their designee has given uh, an address to the hundred lawmakers, that that afternoon, a lawmaker goes back and picks up one of their bills and goes, huh, you know, I never thought about the impact that this bill could have on our tribal partners, and I need to rewrite this bill. Or, huh, you know, the tribes should really be included in this, like, water infrastructure bill, or a broadband bill, or an education funding grant bill. And, you know, before where we never would include the tribes or even think about it, I hope that now lawmakers will go, you know what, I should probably pick up the phone and call Chairman Hart and see what his thoughts are about this bill and how it how it impacts 
the tribes and that that just becomes a regular practice of all 100 lawmakers. Because even though not every lawmaker maybe has a constituent that lives in one of the tribal lands, they probably do have a constituent, they probably do have a constituent that considers their ancestors tied, you know, to those communities. And so this should, this should really elevate the General Assembly's connection to um, our tribes. And that is so long overdue. All right. I want to thank you so much for giving us your time today. Is there anything else that you would like us to know about this bill? No, I really appreciate you guys covering it. I think it's a, I think it's an important mark in Colorado's history that, that signifies, you know, a, a new way to move forward of elevating uh, the Ute Mountain Ute and the Southern Ute's voices in the business of state government. And I think that's incredibly important that we do this and more. For those of us just tuning in, we just spoke to Senator Donovan from Vail about a requirement for annual tribal addresses to the Colorado legislator. If you missed any part of this interview, please check us out at kcsufm.com news or by searching KCSU news wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again, Senator Donovan. Thank you so much. All right. I'm Coda Babcock and we'll be right back with national news. Welcome, class. Today we'll be talking about the elements. We're going to start with boron, number five. This class is boron. <laughs> you know, Jimmy, boron is a trace element, so you actually need it to live. Wait a second. Who are you? I'm DJ Pompey. It's a crossover episode. <laughs> Oh, I get it. So that's why science matters. That's exactly right, Jimmy. And it's why you should listen to me, DJ Pompey. And me, DJ Attorney at Law. On Thursdays from 5 to 7 p.m. to hear more about why science matters on our show, Science Matters. (laughs) And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News, and you're listening to National News for Thursday. Mayor Eric Adams of Brooklyn, New York, announced a person of interest in the Brooklyn subway shooting investigation. CBS News reports that Frank James, a 62-year-old man, was linked to the subway shooting through a U-Haul van associated with it. A video showed a man who matches James in appearance carrying a bag to commit the attack. Ten people were injured from the shooting, and more were hurt after subway riders panicked. 
James was arrested in New York's East Village borough, and the shooting led to new security procedures from the New York Police Department. One of the new security plans includes adding detectors at subway stations. These detectors would not be TSA level and would not even be noticeable by most riders. 23 people were injured after tornadoes ripped through central Texas. The Associated Press reports that about half of those injured required treatment in local hospitals after the storm uprooted trees and destroyed buildings. In addition to tornadoes and winds, the region saw grapefruit-sized hail based on reports from AP. Tornadoes have been spotted throughout the Midwest this week, including a few Tuesday in Iowa and a possible tornado on the Minnesota-Iowa border. Heavy winds in Lincoln, Nebraska, and here locally in Fort Collins knocked down trees. North Dakota's capital city also closed schools and other public buildings and roadways Wednesday due to a blizzard in the region, with a warning remaining in effect through Thursday. Chief executive officers from Cargill, Tyson Foods, JBS, National Beef Packing, and National Beef Packing will testify to Congress on beef prices and markets. Kanishka Singh from Reuters reports that their perspectives will be used to understand why beef costs are going up for consumers while ranchers are paying less to produce. They will be joined by a panel of ranchers as well to provide the full picture on the issue. Biden announced a plan this year which would focus on the issues of monopolizing in the meatpacking industry as these four giants dictate price trends with little competition. Like many other industries, meatpacking companies have seen a growth in profits but continue to raise prices, an action that could harm efforts to curb inflation. JBS CEO Andre Nuguera, a Greeley local, is among those testifying in these hearings. President Joe Biden accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of committing genocide. Eric McDaniel from National Public Radio reports that Biden said Putin intends to wipe out Ukrainian people and erase Ukrainian identity. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky responded to Biden saying, quote, calling things by their names is essential to stand up to evil, end quote. Biden made his remarks on Russia's actions outside of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. This was only the eighth time in history that the U.S. had declared something to be a genocide. Matthew Miller, who serves as the communications advisor for the National Security Council, told MSNBC that, quote, The president has never, since the beginning of this war in Ukraine, hesitated to call out the atrocities that we are seeing on the ground, end quote. Biden's use of the term genocide has been controversial due to the definition of genocide made by the Rome Statute, which says that genocide is, quote, acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, end quote. While experts agree that evidence of intent to destroy a Ukrainian national identity and kill Ukrainian nationals is there, there is some question whether or not the actions in Ukraine formally qualify as a genocide. That's all for National News. I'm Koda Babcock for KCSU News on 90.5 FM. Now for the Soylent Green Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Soylent Green Podcast, now with 40% more people. In this podcast, we'll explore climate change topics ranging from the soil microbiome to complex ecological systems. If you have no idea what either of those are, don't worry, we'll explain any heavy concepts. We're not experts either, but we want to use this platform to share what's happening in climate change research right now. Our time at CSU has afforded us the privilege of studying under some great professors who have opened our eyes to some very cool concepts and ideas in soils, ecology, agro ecosystems, climate change, and more. Now we want to pass some of these awesome concepts along to you. Topics and questions that will be covered in this episode include what is the soil microbiome? How do microbes affect greenhouse gas emissions? What is ecosystem engineering and what role do microbes play in it? 
soil viruses, and fecal matter transplants. At Soil and Green, our goal is to educate the general public to the hypotheses and theories and distinguishing the difference between the two floating around in the climate change research discussion. We want to invite you to listen as we pick the brains of our guests to learn how researchers are trying to provide answers to some of the biggest questions of our fledgling geologic epoch, the Anthropocene. Our very special guest today is the one and only Dr. Kelly Wrighton, Associate Professor of Soil Microbiomes at Colorado State University. She runs the Wrighton Lab on campus, which focuses on, you guessed it, the soil microbiome. What does that mean? Generally, it's the environment that soil microbes inhabit. What are soil microbes, you might ask? Soil microbes can range from bacteria or bugs as they are also known, to microscopic multicellular organisms. The Wrighton Lab is particularly interested in the microbial contribution to ecosystem processes, especially carbon and nitrogen cycling. What the hell does that mean? Well, it really means they track the role that microbes play in breaking down organic matter into soils. No, it's not all organic matter, fun fact. Organic matter usually only makes up a few percent of soils, and getting nutrients to other organisms and ultimately plants as well as the culpability of these little buggers and emitting greenhouse gases. Dun, dun, dun. This really is the most apropos way to kick off this podcast, too, because it allows us to start at the smallest level of living organism to be addressed later, present in the soil. And we'll learn that they may not be the smallest living organism living in the soil, but that depends on what you consider living or not living. We'll talk more about that later. Without further ado, we'd like to welcome Kelly to the program and get started. Hi, Kelly. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks for, for being coming. here. <laughs> my name is Alyssa Hanafi, and I'm a soil and crop science major at Colorado State University. I am Levi Johnson. I'm a soil and crop science major as well at Colorado State University, and I'm concentrating on soil ecology. And welcome to our very first episode of the Soylent Green podcast. Hopefully you get the reference. <laughs> if not, you're fired. Look it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> look it up. <laughs> <laughs> Noob. <laughs> so Kelly, first, can you tell us a little bit of how you got started studying microbes? That's a great question. So I actually was really passionate about fish and aquariums in high school. So I volunteered at the Seattle Aquarium all through high school. Cool. So I always liked looking into worlds, I think, and looking at how organisms interact in these worlds and how they interact with their environment. And I would just spend hours and hours at Seattle Aquarium just like watching these animals interact. So here's a fun fact about oceanic microbes. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, there is a product of a microalgae called Karenia brevis, which lives in our ocean, and it is approved as a medical treatment for strokes and cystic fibrosis. Furthermore, researchers are looking at this chemical as a treatment for cancer. And so I knew nothing about microbes and I went to school for a biology degree. And as part of that degree, I took a microbiology course. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is like looking through a microscope at all of these little worlds. And so then I switched my major, as you do in your fifth year, you know, <laughs> went on to have a degree in microbiology. Cool. How did that then move on to studying microbes specifically in soils and agroecosystems? I was really interested in organisms that make a difference. And so I wanted to kind of have this place where microbiology met environmental awareness or made a difference. And I wanted that sense for my research. And so it turns out microbes were the best place to invest my time because there are these little engines that catalyze all these different reactions on this planet. And so, you know, we can harness those engines to do good or harness those engines to understand how they could potentially produce greenhouse gases, as Levi mentioned earlier. And so I really felt like this was a great opportunity to partner environmental knowledge with microorganisms. 
Here at CSU, students can study fermentation science, where people like us can enjoy special tappings brewed right on site. Microbes are a necessary part of this process as well. What are you and your team working on currently in the lab? Me being part of that team. Yeah, you're, you're part of that team, Levi. I was like, I don't know, Levi, what are we doing in the lab? I haven't been in the lab in 12 years. Uh, as you guys saw by the nerdy papers I had with me at the at the brewery before. We were um, not at a brewery. We were not. We were not. We were at a coffee shop. Exactly. Yes, at the coffee shop. Our lab does a lot of interesting, in my mind, obviously, looking at the role that microbes play in soil systems and how they impact carbon and nitrogen cycles. And so those ramifications can be in understanding these microbes and how they contribute to methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas, or understanding how these microbes can be used to harness to create nutrients for plants. Microbes that produce methane in anaerobic conditions are called methanogens. Researchers at Stanford are looking into using methanogens as a source of natural gas as a greener approach to renewable energy. Also something I'm very interested in. Yeah. Can we go into detail about that, actually? Like, how do microbes and greenhouse gas emissions relate? Like, how do they affect one another? Okay. So let's back one step up and talk about what microbes are. So microbes yeah. are these little, little cells, single cells, right? And so we're hundreds and hundreds and billions of cells in our body. These are single-celled organisms. And what they are is you can think of them, like I said earlier, as these like little engines or these little catalysts. And so they contain basically sacks of enzymes that catalyze different reactions. And what makes soil one of the coolest, if not the coolest ecosystem on this planet, is that it contains billions and billions of these little engines. In fact, a teaspoon of soil can contain between 100 million and 1 billion bacteria strains. And these engines are all doing different types of reactions. And so we throw them all together such that a gram of soil has 25 billion of these little engines. And then they catalyze all these reactions that make this world run. So the reason we can breathe oxygen is because of our microorganisms on this planet. The reason you can process food in your diet is because of the microorganisms in your gut. And so these engines and understanding how they function is vital to kind of plant health. And so to get back to your question, which is how do microorganisms affect plant health and how do they affect greenhouse gases? Those are just byproducts. Like we breathe out, we basically breathe in oxygen and we breathe out CO2. Microorganisms do the same. And so one of the things they breathe out is CO2. One of the things they breathe out is methane. And those are greenhouse gases. They also, in doing that, like we breathe oxygen, they can breathe a whole bunch of other things. They can breathe nitrates, they can breathe iron, they can bring sulfates. And so what that means is they're basically transforming those compounds in soils to create nutrients for plants. And so that's how these billions of engines, these little tiny invisible engines, catalyze this whole planet that we live in, including our own bodies. About some of those greenhouse gases. So we learned in your class that especially in some of these peat soils, and now that I'm learning some of these wetland soils, they have potential to create quite a bit of greenhouse gases. Is that right? Yeah. So these systems are fascinating because they store a bunch of carbon. So that's a new buzz for a lot of people in ag is how do we use ag systems to store carbon or sequester carbon? Ag stands for agriculture for those that might not know. But these systems have been doing it for the whole existence of these habitats, right? And so the idea is that a bunch of carbon comes into it. In fact, 30% of the carbon on this planet is stored in these saturated soils like wetlands or permafrost, like you allude to. And then as a byproduct of microbial metabolisms in those systems, 
systems or the microbial engines functioning, we get basically these these microbes essentially, for lack of a better word, burp out methane as a byproduct of that activity. And so we're really interested in, in how we can keep carbon in soils and keep it stabilized in soils because it's really important to kind of our whole climate health. But also part of this is these bacteria have been doing this and this is what gives us an ozone and this is what gives us a comfortable planet to live in is because we've been reliant on these bacteria to do this job. And so it's kind of this management of carbon in the system through these microbial engines that makes this planet function in a healthy way. So microbes have the ability to store carbon from the atmosphere and help mitigate some of our anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. How do these microbes store carbon? Is it in their actual bodies? Is that where the carbon is being stored or do they have another mechanism that stores the carbon? I wanted to put a brief definition in here of anthropogenic, which refers to processes that are affected by humans. So the Anthropocene is a highly contested and new geologic epoch, which in other words is a name for a very long period of time in terms of rock life. <laughs> the, the Holocene is the period prior to this. The name of the book and film series Jurassic Park is derived from the Jurassic period. And fun fact, most of the dinosaurs in the movie did not live in the Jurassic period rather the Cretaceous period. Yeah, so microbes can control the storage of carbon by two ways. One, they are carbon themselves. Um, so to get to your point, yes, they can fix CO2. They can also accumulate biomass, which is further storing or building carbon in systems. But they can also store carbon in systems by not chomping down the carbon that is in soils. And so what we see in anoxic habitats, which what I mean by that is soils that don't have oxygen because they're filled or saturated with water, carbon stays around for a lot longer than it does in something like arid soils like we have here in Colorado when you go out to the Arctic field site. So the reason why that is, is because the microbes don't have the oxygen to breathe and to really decompose all of that available carbon. And so it's really understanding that how these microbes deal with these changes in oxygen and how that affects their ability to break down that carbon. You'd mentioned earlier ag systems. I know that there's a very big potential for carbon storage there as well. Can you illuminate some more on that subject? I think that's a really important space in the, the idea that what makes ag systems such an tractable system for somebody like me who's who's kind of grown up in wetland soils in these kind of, for lack of a better word, wild systems, is that ag is a managed system. And so we have managed ecosystems. And so we have hosts in the case of our crop plants, and we have soils, but these soils aren't like the soils that I'm working in, where they're subjected to all of these climatic things that are not kind of controlled. I mean, we're adding known amounts of nitrogen. We're adding known amounts to these systems. And, and, and they're censored because we have colleagues in our department who build these sensors and they're modeled because we have colleagues who do these things. And so we can really track the role that these microorganisms are playing in these ecosystems. And that's what makes ag, and that's why it came to Colorado State, such an appealing system for someone like me who's always worked in wild systems, is that we never had that kind of infrastructure and that desire to manage microbiomes and that infrastructure to manage those microbiomes. And when I say microbiomes, I mean those group of microbial engines in these soils that are catalyzing all these reactions. Bacteria from all four groups perform important services related to water dynamics, nutrient cycling, and disease suppression. A few important bacteria include nitrogen-fixing bacteria, which form symbiotic associations with the roots of legumes like clover and lupine, nitrifying bacteria, which change ammonium to nitrite, denitrifying bacteria, which convert nitrate to nitrogen or nitrous oxide, and, and exitomites, which are a large group of bacteria that grow as hyphae, like fungi. So say that you're working in an ag system that is comprised of a monoculture of one crop, say it's all soybean, all corn, which a lot of our big ag industries grow. Is there a 
correlation between the quantity and quality of microbes in a monoculture system versus a system that is more biodiverse? Well, I'll tell you what we want to say, and then I'll tell you what I think (laughs) the literature says. Give it to me straight. I'm going to give it to you straight (laughs) because this is not going to be a popular idea. I I want to believe and what our community would want us to believe because we think about there's this kind of, how do I say it for lack of a better word, this idea that we understand ecological healthy systems and we take that and apply that to ag. And in that idea, the more biological complexity or the more biological diversity we have, we associate that with basically more sustainable, more stable systems. And so I think to answer your question, we all infer that from the data out there. But I will tell you, the field is not at the same rigor because our tools are only just being translated to that system. And so I think only now can we really begin to answer your question. Do the number of microbes change? We could probably estimate that 20 years ago. Do the type, the who's there of those microbial engines, what's their name? Are you a Honda? Are you a Toyota? We could have answered that probably 10 years ago. But do the Honda and the Toyota function the same way? And do we need all of those? Hondas and Toyotas and all the other different makes and models, it really comes down to how those microorganisms function as engines and how many unique engines do we have in a soil. We're only now, because it's only at this really ripe period where our techniques and our knowledge of genome sciences has kind of met soil, that we can start addressing that question. And I think that's the really the $5 million question that we really want to answer is, is there a relationship between above ground diversity and below ground function and functional stability? And I think that we're just starting, I mean, just in the last year, or two, as you guys know from my class, those papers are just starting to come out. Sounds like someone needs to research that a bit and get some answers. <laughs> yeah. I'll get right on that. See you guys yeah. later. Yeah. There's a USDA grant due in August, just in case you're listening from managers. <laughs> so I kind of want to go back to what you were just saying and kind of explain more for our listeners who might not know, what is the process of identifying microbes? Who is there, the Honda, the Toyota? And then when you say the genome, what do you mean? Are we sequencing their DNA and maybe explain what is on the future or on the horizon for soil microbiology. Yeah, let's start with genome. So I think because of 23andMe or because you can send in your dog and feel like and get an answer back of what kind of, you know, mutt you have, we think that we as a society are more comfortable with the idea of what a genome is. And a genome is the collection kind of of our DNA, our DNA makeup. And in that DNA, we encode hundreds and thousands of genes. Those genes are, for lack of a better word, those parts, that part list for the car. And so what those genes tell us as microbiologists or even in your own body is the reality actions that our cells can catalyze. And so a genome, we can look at a genome and it can give us a metabolic blueprint of the reactions that that engine, that genome, that organism is catalyzing. And so when we do this in soils, we can have hundreds of thousands of genomes and we can look at what that metabolic repertoire, what those reactions are that those genomes are catalyzing. And so it's a really powerful tool to ask those kinds of questions that we're trying to address, which is how does the function of the soils as it's provided by the microorganisms change in response to ag management practices or other amendments that we do in agricultural systems. So essentially, scientists know which microbes are present, but we're still trying to figure out what exactly they do. Yeah, even our best studied microorganism, which is not my favorite because I don't like the poster childs, but the poster child, <laughs> underdog. right? That we're, yeah, I, I root <laughs> for the underdogs. I work in soils. So the, the poster child, right, of all of microbiology is E. coli. I think we're all familiar with the 
name E. coli. We hear pe about people going to Jack and Box and eating burgers and getting an E. coli infection, right? But it turns out that it's also the workhorse in the lab. And so even with E. coli, when we take E. coli genome that we've been studying since the 19, you know, it was probably one of the first genomes inventoried. And we've been studying this organism for, you know, 70 years. We know about 50% of what that machine of E. coli can do. E. coli was actually first described by a German scientist, Theodor Escherich, in 1885. So in fact, this knowledge has been around for 136 years to be exact. So when we read the genome, we can only really annotate, which is when we can assign a function to a, a gene, 50% of that genome. And so now you can imagine that we step into soils and we have all these machines that sort of look like a Honda, sort of look like a Toyota, but don't really look like a Honda or Toyota. And now we're trying to infer what they're doing. And so we're always taking kind of this leap when we're in, in soils about what these microorganisms are doing. And that's what we call this kind of dark matter. We know it's there. We know it catalyzes important reactions, but we don't really know how to infer everything that it does today. And I think that's what makes our fields such an exciting frontier in the next 10 years. If you just tuned in, that was Microbiology with Dr. Kelly Wrighton on the Soylent Green podcast. To listen to the full episode, check it out at kcsufm.com slash podcasts or on the KCSU app. I'm DJ Pompey. And I'm DJ Attorney at Law. And you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is Play Like a Girl, a bi-weekly podcast about Colorado State University's female athletes and sports. This is Carson Lane, your host and current student athlete here at Colorado State coming to you from KCSU. In each episode, I plan to talk about Colorado State's female athletes and sports updates to inspire us to stay updated, involved, and passionate about supporting our female athletes. Since we last met, the women's basketball team has battled in Moby Arena. As of February 10th, the Rams have accomplished a 15-7 overall season, 6-6 conference record, and are currently ranked 7th in the Mountain West Conference. Although Colorado State isn't taking the lead in the Mountain West, we have seen some advanced game execution throughout the season. Rewinding all the way back to January 9th, Colorado State took on San Jose State University. Only three games into the Mountain West Conference, the Rams managed to take the win against the Spartans with a blowout win of 90-64 right here in Moby Arena. This was the season's largest lead win during conference play, beating the Spartans by 26 points. Now, as the season has continued, there has been high levels of excitement and anticipation for the Rams. Most recently, on February 9th, Colorado State University battled Utah State University in a nail-biter down to the last seconds of the matchup. The Rams ultimately brought another win to Moby Arena, winning 86-83. to 
This win couldn't have been possible without the hard work of graduate and student and guard Upe Atosu. In the last five seconds of the game, Atosu found herself at the free throw line, only inches away from securing the win. Without doubt, Atosu pulled through, making two successful free throws and bringing home the win for Colorado State. Reflecting on their most recent game, the Rams are going to have to bring more to Moby Arena on February 17th for the first Border War battle of the season against the University of Wyoming. The Border War is an important game for the Rams because Wyoming is currently ranked 4th in the Mountain West Conference. Winning this Border War battle will hopefully bring Colorado State's rankings up and set the team up for the upcoming Mountain West Conference Championships. The tournament will take place on March 6th through March 9th in Las Vegas, Nevada at the Thomas and Mack Center. The Border War and Mountain West Tournament will be broadcasted on the Mountain West Network. Now shifting our focus from the court to the diamond, the Colorado State women's softball team is back in season. The team's first debut of the 2022 season will take place in Fullerton, California in the Easton Classic Tournament. The tournament will take place from February 11th to February 13th. Unfortunately, this isn't the only road tournament that the Rams will have this season. After the Easton Classic Tournament, they will head to Denton, Texas for the Tracy Bird Classic Tournament from February 18th to February 20th. Following that, the Rams will hit the road again for Phoenix, Arizona for the Lopes Up Classic from February 25th to February 27th. The first at-home debut for the Rams softball team will be right here in Fort Collins, Colorado on March 4th as we host the Colorado Classic. This tournament will take place from March 4th to March 6th. You can stay up to date on Colorado State softball season by following along with their social media, their Instagram page at CSU Softball and their Twitter page at Capital CSU Softball. As for today's episode, that is it, Ramley. Thank you for listening. I am Carson Lane, your host, and this is Play Like a Girl. Until next time. This is Ellie Shannon with your tech news. TikTok confirmed today that the company is testing a feature that allows users to dislike individual comments on videos. Individuals can flag comments they find irrelevant or inappropriate without the dislike being visible to others. TikTok stated in a blog post that the community feedback will add to the range of factors they already use to help keep the comment section consistently relevant. In a transparency post from the company, they stated that between October and December of 2021, over 85 million videos were removed. The company is still testing other features that will be announced in coming weeks. A Twitter shareholder filed a securities fraud lawsuit in New York against Elon Musk. The shareholder argues that Musk waited to declare his purchase of Twitter stock, He depressed the share price and ripped off others who sold Twitter stock. According to Bobby Allen of NPR News, under securities laws, Musk was supposed to alert the Securities and Exchange Commission within 10 days after purchasing 5% or more of Twitter stock.
Musk did not file SEC paperwork until 11 days after he was supposed to. Essentially, Musk was able to buy Twitter stock at a discount. The lawsuit comes after news of Musk turning down a seat on Twitter's board. A study conducted shows that the rate of serious injuries at Amazon warehouses in the United States is more than twice as high as those at other non-Amazon warehouses. The study examines injury data supplied to the federal agency that oversees workplace safety, according to Sarah Ashley O'Brien of CNN News. In 2021, there were over 38,334 total recordable injuries at Amazon facilities, and among those, roughly 34,000 were considered serious injuries. Amazon's treatment of workplace safety is also under watch in Washington. The Department of Labor and Industries last month issued a rare citation and a $60,000 fine to Amazon for knowingly putting its workers at risk of serious injuries in violation of workplace safety laws. Earlier this month, six Amazon employees were killed when they were struck by a tornado while working in Illinois, which is another investigation that Amazon is now involved in. Thanks for listening to your tech news. This is Ellie Shannon on 90.5 FM. Now here's the weather. Today warmed up compared to Wednesday with a high in the late 50s and a low of 30 degrees with windy and partly cloudy conditions. Friday will continue to warm up to the mid-60s for a high with a low of 30 degrees once again with winds slowing compared to today and mostly sunny conditions. Moving into the weekend, expect partly cloudy skies and moderate winds with a high in the mid-60s and a low just over 30 degrees. Sunday cools down just a bit with cloudy skies and heavy winds. Next week, the temperatures will continue to warm up, starting Monday with a high of 63 degrees, a low of 37 degrees, with mostly sunny skies. Tuesday, we'll see a high of 75 degrees with a low of 43 degrees and partly cloudy skies with winds slowing down from the weekend. And for Wednesday, tune in next week on Tuesday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for the Rocky Mount Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Don't forget to donate to our DJathon fundraiser available at kcsufm.com slash donate. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David Demuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, London Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Bandell, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. <laughs>